and call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. That seems to be a little strong, but it is strong for a purpose. And this revelation that God has began to give me for these last couple of years now, honestly, it's been probably the most life-changing thing that's happened to me since I received the gift of the Holy Ghost. So I want to share this revelation with you and uh, let ministry be in the place. And I'm simply preaching about daddy issues. Daddy issues. Now, what I don't want you to do is immediately say, oh, yeah, he's talking to that one, that one, and that one. They got daddy issues. But I think by the time that we get through the word of God today, I think we'll see that all of us need to realize we have daddy issues, all of us, and that we need this word of God to speak to us and to reveal our God to us. God bless you today. You may be seated. The term daddy issues is an informal phrase for the psychological challenges resulting from an absent or an abnormal relationship with one's father. There are certain things that a father must provide for his children. And if that does not happen, then the child deals with daddy issues. I put together a quick list so that you could see my mindset. These things a father should provide. A father should provide unconditional love. A father should provide housing, food of some sort. Should provide proper teaching, proper discipline. A father should protect the well-being of its children. That's physically for sure, but also emotionally and very much spiritually. Priest of the home, spiritually protect their children. Father should spend quality time. A father should teach good work ethics. A father should give wise counsel. And on and on and on. These are the things that a father should provide. And when a father fails to do that, deficiencies show up in the children that become landmark battles that they deal with for the entirety of their life. Not until they're just 18 or they move out of the house. But these deficiencies become landmark battles that they deal with for their entire life. Often individuals try to fulfill this missing place in their life when the father didn't provide by going to extreme measures and perhaps making an individual in the neighborhood that they trust a father figure or a pastor sometimes becomes a father figure. God forbid that a young lady would marry an individual looking for a father. It happens way too often. Your husband should be your husband, not your father. And your wife should not be your mama. It should be your wife. But it happens way too often. When that happens, there is destined to be failure and hurt and brokenness in the marriage. Psychiatrists and psychologists tell us that sexual perversions are often traced back to daddy issues. That emotional battles such as fear, anger, Depression, rebellions are often linked back to daddy issues. It is becoming a catch-all for individuals that have brokenness in their life. You must have had daddy issues. This is why you have the problems you have. 
many characters in the word of God actually demonstrate this same battles. Now the scripture's not gonna come out and said, hey, this individual had daddy issues. But as you study their life, you'll begin to see that obviously that's what they dealt with. And I would submit for your reasoning that probably the very first child born to mankind had daddy issues. <laughs> that's right, Cain. And Cain is dealing with angers and rebellions to the degree that he kills his brother. This is not just a simple thing. He is, he is boiling over with anger and jealousy and rebellion, probably daddy issues. Adam, of course, was created a full-grown man and never had a physical father, so maybe there's some excuse for Adam. I don't know, but Cain had daddy issues. Look just a little further in the scripture and you'll find these two girls, they are called Lot's daughters, who are so desperate to find purpose with their father that they get him drunk and have babies by their daddy. Perversion, have babies by their daddy to somehow find value in the eyes of their father. Absolutely daddy issues. Jezebel, she gets a very bad rap and she should, but do you see the desperateness in her trying to step up to an authority that is not hers to try to prove that she has value and worth? Probably daddy issues in her life. In the New Testament, Mary Magdalene is a perfect case. She whom Jesus delivered of seven demons and healed of seven sicknesses, but what got her into that place? Probably daddy issues. But the character that leaps out to me is this man, Jacob. Jacob is a twin, second born of twins. And the Bible lets us know that when his brother Esau, the twin brother Esau is born, that he came from the womb, ready, ruddy complexion or reddish complexion and hairy all over. And his dad, Isaac, thought that he had produced the man's man at birth. He's just a little baby, but he's got these manly features already. And Isaac dotes on him. And Esau, Esau lives out that to the fullness and becomes a hunter of the fields and one that has very much power over the beast of the fields. And, and his brother Jacob, not so much. It's almost like his father is just embarrassed that Jacob was born. In fact, the only time that Jacob gets the love, respect, and the blessing that he needs is when he actually dresses up like his brother and fools his blind father into blessing him. And his father loves on him and blesses him and speaks respectfully to him because he thinks he's his brother. You're talking about daddy issues. And Jacob lives that out as he begins to leave home and he tries to start a new life away from home and he immediately falls in love with a girl and then he ends up marrying the girl's sister and then marries the other girl. Now he's married to two girls. If you're crazy enough to marry two people at one time, don't marry sisters. <laughs> Just trying to help you out here. 
And then he has children, not just by these two that he has married, but he also has children by two girls that are outside of covenant relationship of marriage. This is typical of somebody with daddy issues. He couldn't find approval from his father, so he's desperately trying to find approval from individuals, women as it seems to be, to somehow they would believe in him and love him so much, and his heart is open for multiple situations because daddy issues is absolutely what he deals with. When I look in the scripture and find these characters, it's not hard at all for me to see them struggling with daddy issues because I've dealt with daddy issues most of my life. My, my mom got in the church when she was 20 years of age and it was a powerful revival in San Bernardino, California. Howard Davis was the pastor there. And the revival was a tremendous revival. At the same time, the lady that would be my mom got the Holy Ghost. And there was another man that she had never known until that revival that he prayed through at the same time, about three years older than her. They quickly began to notice each other in the church and making eyes back and forth. And when pastor realized what was happening, he began to caution them. You know, you're brand new in the church and there's a lot of changes happening in your life. And you need to take this relationship slow. So they were married in six months. In case you're wondering, that's not slow. When pastor says take it slow, it doesn't mean get married in six months. Am I helping you, Pastor? <laughs> so, so they're married. Six months later, nine months to the date of their wedding, uh, mom brought forth a child. And this was what to be my older sister. When my older sister was just a little girl, almost two years of age, mom is now expectant with me and her father. While she's pregnant with me, her father, and she was a daddy's girl, her father committed suicide. Mad at his family in an argument, took drugs and alcohol together. Whether it was intentional or unintentional, the effect was the same on those that he left. And mama who had her dad wrapped around her finger could not understand why he would get so upset that he would leave her this way. And mom never got over the death of her daddy. She is grieving, not properly, but she's grieving and crying the whole time that she is carrying me. She's already got hormonal problems with being pregnant, hormonal shifts, and now she's trying to deal with the loss of her dad. And this is how I was brought into the world, in the middle of a time when my mom was grieving and hurting. I was only a few months past one years of age, when my dad was driving late one night in a thunderstorm in Southern California, they said his foot never left the accelerator as we assume he was asleep. His car careened off the road, hit a small tree. Seatbelt around his waist broke. His chest bur burst against the steering wheel. Instantly, dad was gone to his reward. And what they didn't know at the time but found out a couple of months later is that mom was pregnant again with what would be my younger sister. She had grief to try to deal with when she was carrying me.
And now she's lost not only her dad, but her husband while she's having pregnancy with my youngest sister. Mom had a little bit of life insurance money that dad had been able to provide for. And she spent the next few months honestly just moving from one family in the church's house to the next. She couldn't stand the thought of being alone or being a house without anybody. So when loving people in the church would open their arms, to, then she would bring us in. But you got to understand, it's two small children and mom is pregnant and she's not grieving well. And the families that were so kind after a while are like we love you could you leave it was just too much for anybody to deal with and mama is struggling with trying to get alone in her life meanwhile all the way across the nation in the state of Georgia was a young man that had gotten married and had two children a boy and a girl and his wife got cancer and she went on to her reward and now this individual this man that had dealt with abuse in his life and was trying to deal with grief had so many walls up that he didn't properly grieve so my family's not grieving well this family's not grieving well and somebody decided it wouldn't it be a great thing if we got these two families together now, while there was a lot of sympathy and empathy one for another, neither one are grieving. And until there's healing and wholeness, trying to put a dysfunctional family together is going to cause more dysfunction. And that's, that's what happened. Moved us all to Georgia. In fact, when mom and dad began to date, it was, you know, dating for them, one living in Georgia, one living in California, was, was mostly writing letters, snail mail. There was landlines at the time, but a long-distance phone call between Georgia and California, just 30 minutes, could be $45, $50, $60, and that was a lot of money in the late 60s. And so they dated. Dad flew out one time to meet us, and Grandma was very happy to let me know that the whole time that he was there, he was not allowed to meet me. I don't know what that's all about. Maybe I do know what that's about, but... I was all boy, okay? <laughs> In fact, dad was not allowed to meet me the second time he flew out to get married to my mama. And after he said, I do, <laughs> then they said, oh, by the way, here's your new stepson, meet Timbo. And so that's how I met my stepdad and my stepsister and my stepbrother. And we began a life there in Georgia that honestly, the Holy Ghost helped us so much. And there was tremendous things in our family of healing, but, but there was always the dysfunction there because mom never dealt with her grief and my stepdad never dealt with his grief. In our family, it was understood I was to never mention the name of my father. Any pictures that we had, mom had put in an album and hid so that none of us could see it. It was, it was taboo. It was no, no. And I grew up wanting to know who I was and what my father was like, but it was not allowed to talk about Years and years later, when we tried to talk to mom, she had so shut all the memories out of her mind, she couldn't even tell us the color of his eyes or what his favorite food was. 
or any simple thing about him. The same was true for my stepbrother and stepsister. They were not allowed to mention the name of their mother. And it was almost like they acted like nothing had ever happened. We'd always been a family. Mom and dad, my stepdad and mom decided not to officially adopt me so that I could carry on the name of my father. And I think that I'm uh, very glad of that. I appreciate that. But at the same time, I always felt like I wasn't part of the family because they were the Dudleys and I was Tim Green. (laughs) And nobody else except my sisters held the same name I did. And when we're introduced, it'd be like, Brother Dudley, how are you doing? Is this your son? Yeah, this is my son, Tim Green. And they'd be like, that's his middle name? No, that's his last name. And he'd get uncomfortable and nobody would say, just uncomfortable stuff. I remember growing up how many times I wanted dad to play ball with me or to go fishing. And I used to think how, how I have got cheated, that God himself took my father from me. And now I'm in a family where my dad is more into sci-fi and he doesn't like sports. And, you know, if my dad was alive, I'd be loved. And I, he'd think I was pretty neat and we'd do things together and all these things that I fought with and dealt with growing up. When my dating years came, I was Jacob. It was very typical. I was being honest with the young ladies as I would tell them, I want to meet a million girls. I want to go a million places. I, I, I want to fall in love a million times. And they didn't understand that, but because there's a drive in me to somehow feel valuable. If somebody would just love me head over heels. So quickly I got the name as a player because I would date two or three girls at the same time, trying to get all of them to fall in love with me. And when that became complicated, I'd just move on to the next girls. I was a player, but not because I was trying to be a player. I'm desperately trying to find love that gives me value and purpose. I remember the first time that my stepfather, well, it wasn't my stepfather, first time that a man told me he loved me. I was at the church service and we had a foot washing and a communion and Brother Fieselman came up to me, that man in the church, wrapped his arms around me and he said, Tim, I love you. Tears are run down his face and I, my first thoughts are, what is wrong with this pervert? But my heart was beating so fast. And I'm thinking, why in the world do I even care what he says? It looks like he means it. Why would this man love me and say that he does? And I got out of his arms and went over to the corner. I was messed up for a long time talking to God because I couldn't understand why a man would say that to me. This is the life that I was raised in. My mom and dad thought the best thing that they could do is bring two more children into the family. So mom and dad had their own children. But when they were born, they were angelic in the eyes of mom and dad. They could do no wrong. It didn't matter what was right or wrong. If it was you versus the children, you were wrong. 
Because when they looked at them, that was the hope and the union of their marriage going forward. When they looked at us, it was hurt and confusion of the past that had never properly been dealt with. <clears throat> I have a scripture that I have looked to so many times in my life growing up. And it's Hebrews 4 and 15, which declares, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And every time I've dealt with things and had this stuff I had to somehow come to grips with, I'd go to that scripture and I'd say, It doesn't matter how bad it's been or how broke or burnt I am. I know that I can go to Christ because he will present me before God. There will absolutely be a connection but when I really began to deal with my stuff can I say this every one of us has stuff and every one of us needs to recognize we have stuff and we need to deal with our stuff the power of the Holy Ghost brings you into a new birth experience in the family of God but it's the word that has to change you the Holy Ghost won't take all your stuff away you're still going to have stuff but it's a relationship with the Spirit and the Word, which is one and the same. According to John chapter 1, it's the one and the same that will change your life. So I began to deal with my stuff, and I'm telling you, only just a few years ago. And I said, I want to see this scripture. Not only does your scripture say that you can save me, you can help me, you will join me to God. But it also said you feel the very feelings of my infirmities. So I want to see that in the word of God. I, I want to see where you thought the thoughts that I thought. I want to see where the emotions that I dwelt with, you felt them. You felt the very feelings of our infirmities. So I did a new study on the childhood and the growth of Jesus Christ. Now I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not going to be a traditional look, but I'm telling you that this is absolutely biblical what I share with you. The very first thing that we find about the life of Christ is that he came into this world with an identity of shame because his mama Mary was pregnant outside of marriage. Now we know, oh yeah, what is in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. We know that. But they did not believe that at the time. How difficult would it be for you to believe if, God forbid, one of our precious young ladies came up to us and said, you know, I'm not going to be able to hide it. I'm pregnant. But don't worry about it because it's of the Holy Ghost. That's what they did then. Nobody believed that Mary really was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost and she was pregnant because of that. Even the man that she's engaged to, Joseph, does not believe it. In fact, it's very emphatic when he says he wants to put away the baby, doesn't want the baby, and he wants to put away Mary. He doesn't even want her. And it's not until God gives Joseph a dream and says, hey, what is in Mary is of the Holy Ghost. You need to marry her and raise this child that we find Joseph submitting to the will of God and marrying Moses and raising Mary and Mary and raising this child. And somehow, traditionally, we think that now he's just, Joseph is just jumping up and clicking his heels and is like, woohoo, glad to be in the will of God. Probably not. 
He probably is frustrated with how come I have to muddy my good reputation by marrying the girl that cheated on me in our engagement. Now, I know he's got a dream from God, but how many of us get dreams from God and prophetic words, and then when times get tough, we doubt it? Did God really speak to me, or did I eat too much pizza the night before? Did I really hear from, and we doubt what we hear from God. Joseph must have doubted this. In fact, I think that we see it clearly when later in life Jesus has his ministry and his half-brothers and sisters come to see him in his ministry and the Bible is very clear, they did not believe in Jesus. He's raised in a home where his brothers and sisters don't think he's the Messiah. They don't think he's the Christ. Behind their hands, they think that it's an illegitimate situation that their mama had. My question is this, where'd they get that idea from? Not Mary, because she was there, right? Gabriel spoke to her. But it must have been the doubt of Joseph that came through every once in a while. Is this really the Christ child? Is this really from God? And because of that doubt, the children picked up on the doubt. Jesus is raised in a home where they don't believe in him. They don't believe in him. At 12 years of age, and I'm, I'm blown away that this is even in the scripture because it's perfect for me. 12 years of age, Joseph, who is not only a carpenter, but probably a businessman, has to travel back to Jerusalem for some holidays, okay? And so the whole family gets up. He's got a calendar. He's got to get back. He's a businessman. They go to Jerusalem. They have their vacation. Now they're headed back home, and they realize their 12-year-old boy, Jesus, isn't with them. He's lost. What do you feel like when your child gets lost in Walmart for 15 minutes? You panic much less lost for six hours at Six Flags. What if he was lost for a whole day and night and had to spend the night somewhere, had to eat somewhere, and he's, it's 12. And Mary is panicking. Maybe she's thinking like we would. He's been kidnapped and sold into sex trafficking. Someone has mugged him for the $5 allowance that is in his pocket, and he's laying bleeding in a ditch somewhere. Mary is frantic. She's got spiritual pressure because how do you think it feels to lose the Messiah of the world? Yeah, she had that pressure. So desperately they try to find him and they're going back toward tracing every step that they've had since they've left. Where's the last time they remember seeing him? Finally they get all the way back to Jerusalem. It takes two more days. Now he's been alone taking care of himself for three days. And when they find him, he's in the church and he's blowing the pastor's minds with the amount of scripture that he knows and the authority by which he speaks. And we're impressed, and they were impressed, but who's not impressed is mama. And if you look, just put into a little bit of interpretation, when you look what she says, she basically accuses him and says, you have been so selfish and immature. You've been thinking about nothing about yourself. You've not been thinking about me and your father. That, that's basically what she says. And when she says that, Jesus is 12 years old, and he turns and rebukes his mama on two levels. Uh-oh. Yeah. The first thing that he says is basically this. 
You know, I expect my siblings not to believe in me. And I can understand that my stepfather doesn't know who I am. But you of all people, mama, you should know. Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And then secondly, he said, by the way, that is not my daddy. I must be about my father's. I, I understand that feeling. I can associate with that. Not having respect and value, no one believing and not even feeling like that is your father because he doesn't believe either. This is why the scripture is very emphatic that immediately after this, Jesus goes back to Nazareth and the scripture says that he grew in favor with both God and man. The difference between Jesus and me is yes, he felt every feeling that I felt. Yes, he had all the emotions. He thought all the thoughts, but he was without any sin. Far from me, he was without any sin. Even when his ministry begins, you see this thing happening with daddy issues. Luke 14 and 26, I believe it is, Jesus makes this statement, if any man come to me and hate not his mother, father, sister, brother, he cannot be my disciple. Why do you have to say you got to hate your father? Why didn't you just say something easier? Why didn't you just say, you know, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to make some decisions your family's not going to be happy with. No, he said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to hate your father. That's strong. There's a disciple that wants to follow Jesus to the absolute ends of the world, but he said, my daddy's sick, just let me go bury him, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And Jesus said in Luke 9, 59, let the dead bury the dead. Well, how does that happen? Zombies out there digging graves? Jesus is saying you are trying to make an eternal spiritual decision based on earthly and temporal things that are going on in your life. You never need to make an eternal decision based on the temporary and the natural things around you. Eternal decisions must be made weighed on eternal circumstances. We need to know that. Over and over we see this, and in our text we read, call no man your father upon thee. It's almost like Jesus is starting a new club. Do you remember building a tree house out back behind your house, and once you got finished as a young guy, you, you painted on the side of that like I did? No girls allowed. Cootie givers. I mean, what were we thinking, right? It's like Jesus is starting a club, and he's like, hey, you want to join my club? Well, yeah. Are you a daddy hater? Oh, no. Well, you can't be a part. You hate your daddy? Oh, yeah. Come on, buddy. It, it almost looks like that. But we know that that is not true. For even the Ten Commandments tell us we are to honor our father and our mother. It is the first commandment with promise that if you honor your father and mother, your days should be long upon the earth. Jesus fights for this commandment in the New Testament when they have traditions that allow them to take responsibility, in particular financial responsibility, and to set it aside for something else and say, I'm doing that, I don't have to take care of my parents. Jesus fought for that commandment and said, you're making through traditions the will of God none effect in your life. Jesus 
absolutely believe the Ten Commandments and the law. So what is this strange dichotomy called no man your father on the earth? You've got to understand that Jesus thought in Hebrew. He probably spoke Aramaic, probably spoke some Greek, but he also knew the Hebrew language very well. Often we find the scriptures in Jesus, even at his crucifixion, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is Hebrew speaking when he's on the cross. Often the disciples themselves also will declare that it was by the pool Bethesda, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, because he knows the meaning of Bethesda means sent, but the Greek meaning doesn't mean that, and you don't get the emphasis of it. The disciples thought Hebrew. Jesus thought Hebrew. And the Hebrew word, and I personally believe this, that God gave the Hebrew language to his people because the way you think and the way that you speak develop the way that you act and live. It was a step up for his people. So the word here in our text, which is father, is the very first word in the ancient Hebrew dictionary. Very first word. It gives it priority. It gives it preeminence. That word is transliterated into English, ob, A-W-B, ob. And it doesn't mean simply father. It means primary source, principal source, which makes a lot of sense for it to be translated also father because everything that is birthed, something fathered it. But it's bigger than just father, that's where the paternal came from. It's that this is how everything is begotten from a primary source. And whatever the primary source is, that and that only can the begotten be. Does that make sense? This is why the Jews are huge on lineage because if they can trace their lineage back to some powerful individual, then everything the primary source was, they can be. You get to reading the word of God, you get into Chronicles there, and all of a sudden you're going to come upon page of page of stuff that sounds like this. Lashiblibo begot Pasipitai. And beget shibubu. And you're, and you're thinking, oh, okay, I've got to read the word of God. Okay, I'm done. Because it means nothing to us. Even in the gospels, it shows how important because two of the gospels list the lineage of Jesus Christ back to David and beyond. It's so important. Let, let me show you how important this is. Whatever your father is, that is your primary source, and that's what you'll become. It's why the Old Testament scriptures four times tell us that the sins of the father are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. I'm sorry. There's no getting out of that. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, to the fourth generation, the iniquities that they involved themselves in are upon you at birth. It's generational curses. People tell us today, scientists, psychiatrists tell us that certain people are born differently than others with different tendencies, with different habits, with different perhaps addiction uh, potential. That's not wrong. That is right. 
We don't like to hear that because in America, we're all about created equal stuff. That's not what we'd say today created equal. It's not what our founding fathers actually believed. Much different. It's equal for the opportunity to do something as an American citizen, regardless of race, color, gender, etc. Equal opportunity. Sins of the father visit upon the children. But we've got a beautiful hope because the scripture tells us to those who love the Lord and keep his commandments that generational curses are broken and the sure mercies of David are for thousands of generations. If you want to break generational curses in your life, it's not just pray through the Holy Ghost. That is powerful and that makes you born into the kingdom. But to love the Lord and to keep his commandments is how biblically generational curses are broken. It's the Bible. In fact, I'll just throw this in. Jesus' stepbrothers and sisters came to see him, and people came up to Jesus and said, hey, your family's here, your family's here. And he said, who's my family? Not them, but those who love the Lord and keep his commandments. We, in our culture, and I used to hear my pastor say this, he would say this all the time. He'd say, don't you expect me to do certain things because... My responsibility is first to my family and then secondly to my church family. I'm sorry, that's not biblical. Jesus, now I understand qualifying time and all that stuff and there's got to be balance. But Jesus made it very specifically that when you become part of the church of the living God, that's your church family. And if you don't deal with that properly, your earthly family is going to hurt you and reject you and is going to steal you away from the family of God because you've not made that shift in your heart. I, I know we don't want to hear this, but it's biblical. Jesus himself said, that's not my family. My first family is those that love God and keep his commandments. So... This lineage of tracing back is so very important. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament, he's throwing this thing of father around all the time. Understand in the Old Testament, no one called him father. You won't find that in the Old Testament, God the Father. That doesn't exist. There's about six places in the Old Testament that refer to the Christ, that when the Christ would come, he would be the father. You're talking about a oneness message. Even Isaiah declares unto us, unto a son born, unto us a, a child is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The, this is the promise of the Messiah, and he'd be called the Everlasting Father. There is one God, and Jesus is the Father of all. Am I still in the right place? You believe me. Okay. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, you read the Gospels, and he's everywhere saying, well, I'm only doing what my Father God in heaven tells me to do. And they are absolutely beside themselves. Because if God is his Father, God is his primary source, and everything God is, he can be as the Son of God. This is why they are so mad. In fact, let me show you this scripture. I 
believe it's James 5 and 17. Let me see if that's it. John 5 and 18. Make it John 5 and 18. This is what the Bible says. That the Jews sought the more to kill Jesus because he had not only broken the Sabbath. And that's what we preach. Oh, he was breaking the Sabbath. That's why they wanted to kill him. But he not only broke the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's that Hebrew concept that whatever your primary source is, you can be equal to. Now, the scripture blows us away when Jesus begins to say that we are joint heirs with him. That means when we're born into the kingdom of God, Jesus, the flesh of God, is our brother. I hope I'm not getting too far out here for you who don't understand. We are now joint heirs with God in everything that he is. We can be. That's what Paul is telling us in the book of Romans when he begins to declare that this is who we are. It's what Jesus says when he says that greater things than this shall you do because I go to my Father in heaven. Jesus is calling God his Father. Philippians 2 and 6 also brings this out. Paul said God was, Christ was formed in the being of God or he was being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, that same Hebrew concept. But why is this so important to us? The reason why this is so important is because we have so protected our revelation of the one God that we are afraid to think of God as our father. And because of that, we have daddy issues. Because we don't have a spiritual father. Father in the scripture is all about being a giver and a provider and a lover and showing respect. James, James 1 and 17 says every good gift every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father of life. There's no way around that. If, if you've got any good gift or any perfect gift, it came from Father. And when we want something, we pray to Jesus. Don't be confused. We pray to the Holy Ghost. For crying out loud, we sing to the atmosphere. We do all kind of crazy stuff, but the one that gives us things is Father. Every good gift, every perfect gift. Let me just hit this quick to nail it down. Matthew 7, 11 says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father? Luke 12 and 32, it is your Father's, it's your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Let me tell you how this important is. I watched my, my half-sister, right? The angel, right? I watched her walk up to my dad and say, Dad, I need $50. And I was expecting Armageddon. He's about to backhand her and kick her across the street. How dare she ask for $50? But that's not what happened. He pulled her clothes, loved on her, tasseled her hair, and he smiled and pulled out of his wallet and found a secret place where he had $50 and gave it to her. He didn't ask her anything, and she went off laughing, and my jaw hit the ground because I'd have been afraid to ask that same man for $5, knowing that if I did, he would say, 
Do you deserve it? Have your chores been done? You got to catch this because this is the way we deal with God. Instead of asking him for big things, we're thinking he's going to say, well, have you behaved enough? Are you a good Christian? Have you done your faith walk? Have you prayed enough? And truly, that's not even the matter at all. But that's the way I felt. The difference between me and my sister is that she knows she has a dad that loves her. Me, I'm not so sure. I have to fight to somehow deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. I haven't done enough works to make it happen. John 14 and 6 says the Father will give you the comforter. Matthew 6 and 6, pray to the Father and he'll reward you openly. Matthew 6 and 4, give in secret and the Father will reward you openly. Matthew 6, 15, it's the Father that forgives. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. Jesus said in one of the gospels, say this. He didn't say use this as an example. He said, say this when you pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The very basis of our commandment Communication in prayer should be an understanding that he's our father. I want you to know that I had prayed all of my life. Holy Ghost at five years of age, baptized when I was eight. I prayed all of my life about how much I love you, Lord. You're an awesome Savior. There's none good but you. And I love you. You are the best. Jesus, you are my heart. And I would praise and worship. But the first time I got this revelation and I started saying, I love you, Father, it changed me. In fact, John 16, 23 through 28, let me just summarize. When Jesus is talking about the Holy Ghost coming in our life, he said, in that day, you shall ask me nothing. I know we don't want to hear that. In that day, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, what you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it. We, we don't pray correctly. We don't have a spiritual father. And we got daddy issues. I'm closing real quickly. John 4 and 23 says this. The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers. There must be a difference between worshipers and true worshipers. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. I have racked my brain trying to find worship songs that worship Father. There's a couple of them that mention Father, but they're not worshiping Father. I can think of two, two. He's a good, good Father that came out a few years ago and that old song about Heavenly Father, I appreciate it. We don't sing songs of worship to Father, but we worship Jesus. Not wrong, we worship the Savior, we worship the Lord, we worship the atmosphere, we worship everything you can think of in our songs, and very few times are we true worshipers and worship the Father because the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm appealing to our songwriters. Somebody write a song that worships our Father. We got to change the way we think, and maybe if we'll sing a chorus a thousand times, we'll start thinking that He's our Father. In fact, when Jesus talks about the Holy Ghost, He says it's the promise of the. 
And we come down to the altar and we ask Jesus for the Holy Ghost and we ask for the Holy Ghost to come inside of us and we got all kind of things, but it would be much easier to receive the Holy Ghost if you realize your Heavenly Father has a promise for you. If just let your heart be cleansed through repentance and baptized in Jesus' name, he's got a gift of the Holy Ghost for you. Now, don't want you to be confused. There's one God, his name is Jesus. Our problem is only in the idea that we don't know God as our Father. And let me say this. Trinitarians don't have this revelation. They speak of him, but they don't worship him as their Father. So here's what the text means. It simply means this. Jesus is saying, call no man on earth your primary source for fatherhood. We all have one primary source of fatherhood, and that's our Father in heaven. Now, this is going to be much easier for those who have true physical daddy issues than it is for those who have good daddies. Because you're going to want to not let go of that good daddy. And you think that he's enough. He's not. He's going to fail you because he's human. Even if he has the Holy Ghost, he's anointed of God. He's going to make mistakes because he's human. And only our Heavenly Father can fulfill everything that you need in your life. We've got to have a paradigm shift to think this way, to talk this way, to act this way, to worship this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, stand with me.